Luke 18, 9 through 14. Hear now the word of God. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. Father in heaven, we pray now, O Holy Spirit, that you would illumine our hearts in this word to us tonight, that we may be quickened thereby to grow and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This parable, often referred to as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, uh, is, a, is a beautiful, beautiful parable. And it, uh, it's very unique because it just presents so well, I think so simply and so clearly, the heart of the sinner that is redeemed and is seeking God's mercy, who is cut to the quick by, the, by his sin and by the reconciling work of God. And what's very unique is that this, the beginning of this parable, uh, prior to Jesus speaking it, Luke tells us specifically who the audience is very, very clearly. I mean, you can see that there in verse 9. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, which is not, not a good thing. Uh, but we see that very clearly. And so, just as a very brief introduction, what we have in this parable are two men, two prayers, and two different results. And that's the introduction. That's it. We've got two men. They say two different prayers. And they're two very different results. So let's jump right into it and take a look at the two prayers. And then I do want to spend a little more time tonight applying this. And particularly applying it to us, both of the prayers in our life. So we'll take a look at the Pharisee's prayer. We're told in the, the parable... Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood forth and said, God, I thank you, I'm not like the other men there in verse 11. And the first interesting thing we also see in the text is that he pray, it says he prayed thus with himself. Do you pray to yourself? It's kind of an interesting exercise. But he does address God, but he seems to be talking about himself to himself, doesn't he? Other than initially addressing God, he never mentions God once in his prayer. And throughout his prayer, he's congratulating himself, really. And so we see this sort of self-orientation at at almost a a ridiculous level. Jesus presents presents it as so self-focused in this parable, it's really the epitome of trusting in yourself. It's probably what it would look like. 
he praises himself actually by condemning and ridiculing others. It's not a good thing. And we find it interesting, I think, that he doesn't... Notice who he compares himself to. Extortioners, adulterers. Why didn't he compare himself to Samuel or Moses, right? He's picked certain people to compare himself to, which is very interesting. And, uh, and note just one caution, as we, as we have learned and we've actually talked about, it's very dangerous to start comparing ourselves to others, isn't it? Oh, it's very dangerous. It's a bad road you don't want to go down. You're going to certainly end up discontent or prideful, one or the other. But it mostly leads to divisiveness in your relationship with whoever you're comparing yourself to. If you think another person is better than you, you're going to be kind of angry at them. If you think you're better than them, you're going to be prideful over them. So we just need not compare. And obviously Jesus is teaching us that here. But notice the interesting thing. I mean, this is very blatant, but the Pharisee actually calls out the tax collector who seems to be in his presence. Like, thankfully, I'm not like this man right over here. Very offensive. But the poor uh, tax collector... He, he gets to respond later. But we see, clearly see that the Pharisee's religion is purely a self-confidence and it is a work-based religion. He is tithing, he is fasting, and he is declaring to himself how spiritual and righteous he is in his own sight. But notice a couple things missing from his prayer. He doesn't confess any sins. In fact, he seems to have no sense of guilt whatsoever. And it's really the opposite of what Pastor Suiso, we saw uh, the prophet, prophet state in Isaiah 6, isn't it? Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so you might ask, what is going on with this Pharisee? I mean, why, would you, why would you say such a prayer? And you might ask yourself, could I ever say a prayer like that? Do I have these inclinations of my heart too? No guilt, no conscience, focused on others, focused on how I'm better? The Pharisee thinking he's perfect, condemning other men. See, if we trust in our, heart, in our own hearts, if we trust in ourselves, we are hardened in heart, and we do not see the merciful work of God in our life. Now, do you recall when the disciples were out fishing one night. Children, you might remember that. Remember Jesus uh, showed up. The disciples had been fishing all night and they didn't catch any fish all night. And then Jesus came. You remember what he said? That's right. Cast your nets on the other side of the boat, which seems like, well, I mean, that's what, how far difference is that going to make, right? (laughs) But in Luke 5, we remember Simon answered him and said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, we will let down the net. When they had done that, they caught a great number of fish, didn't they? And their net was breaking, and so they signaled to their partners to come in the other boat and help them. And then they they came with both boats and filled them up so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Which we all often talk about and say, this is an interesting re- response by Peter, right? I think, you know, I think I would say, wow, praise God, that's amazing. Thank you, Jesus. It's not, not what he said at all. He said, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
Why? Peter saw what? He saw the greatness, the holiness of God, and he saw his sinful heart. He saw this huge chasm, this this contrast of who he was and who God was. His toiling all night did nothing. He also saw his works. He brought nothing to the table. And Christ, by one word, was able to bring forth this. He said, I am a sinner and you are holy. And the Pharisee, in our parable tonight, who trusted himself, seemed to be blind to the majesty and holiness of God. Why? Because he thought, I don't need to be saved. I mean, I I fast, I tithe, I'm better than all these men. I'm good to go. Blind to the sinfulness of his self and condemned others. Now, you might think this, uh, this prayer that this Pharisee says is pretty extreme. Like, really, would anyone say a, a prayer like this? Because no one would. And actually, it's, it's, it's a super self-righteous prayer. But, but I actually want to read to you an old Pharisaic prayer that was actually read uh, and recorded during the, about the time of Jesus' ministry. So, let's see. Well, let's just read what the... Let's read it. You, you, can, you can see what you think. Let me read this prayer of the Pharisees back uh, in this time. I thank thee, Jehovah my God, that thou hast assigned my lot to sit with those in the house of learning and not with those who sit at the street corners. For I arise early and they arise early. I arise early to study the words of the Torah and they arise early to tend the things of no importance. I weary myself and they weary themselves. I weary myself and gain thereby while they weary themselves without gaining anything. I run and they run. I run towards the life of the age to come while they run run towards the pit of destruction. So again, we we can see he's building a contrast here in this prayer, obviously, of amen. We're the ones called, redeemed, saved, going to to the kingdom and the others are not. But we see that there's a lot of self-congratulation here. We see that there's a lot of uh, 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 of just self-promotion and, and, and condemning of others. No confession, no humility, rather pride and self-focus. And so perhaps when Jesus was speaking this, he was accurate, he was speaking to those, he was teaching, yes. And we know, we know that, of course, uh, of our Lord. And so Luke's description at the beginning of our parable is accurate. Let's go ahead and look at the prayer of the tax collector. Do you remember the prayer of the tax collector? Notice he stands afar off and would not so much raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's, that's a very short prayer. That's the entirety of his prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, obviously, we see that these prayers are complete opposites in many ways. The tax collector's prayer shouts, I am unworthy, God. I am unworthy. And so we also see he stands at a distance, right? A distance from really the temple of God there. He's standing away from the presence of God because of why? He's ashamed of his sin. Very similar to what Peter said. Depart from me, God. I am, I am the sinner. You are holy. And so he stands afar off. Does not even raise his eyes. Notice the tax collector. He's not concerned about anyone else around him. He doesn't, it's like, it's just between, it's just him and God is what it sounds like. And the tax collector, he's not comparing to others. He's not recollecting any great things he's done. He's broken. He's mourning over his sin because he, so he cries out to mercy, cries out to God for mercy. 
And we also see that this is very similar to Paul's message to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Paul there is recognizing, yes, Christ came to save sinners and I'm a chief sinner. I have sinned. And that's that's the same attitude of the tax collector here. Not worried about what other people's sins are and what other people are doing. I am a sinner before a holy God. So he is earnestly begging God for mercy. He does not want God's anger. He wants God's favor. He wants God's mercy. And unlike the tax collector, unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector is deeply convicted by his sin. He knows, in fact, his sin condemns him. And that's why he's broken over it. So we have two men, two prayers, and now we have two results. Verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house rather justified than the other For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see that one of these men, it's the tax collector, went home justified. It was the only one, the other one was not justified before God. And so what does that mean, that this man was justified before God? Well, in considering that, you might think of a few places this is used in Scripture, right? We might think of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might think of Romans 4, right? Speaking of Jesus himself, who was delivered up because of our, of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Right? Well, let's, let's uh, consider uh, the, uh, the, the, con- the confession that God's given us that we adhere to in the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism of our Westminster Confession. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sin, accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. So, justification. Remember, the tax collector went home justified. Justification is God's pronouncement, effectively, of righteousness upon us, pardoning all our sin, taking it away. You might think of David in Psalm 51, right? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And that's what it is. That's justified. God is taking away the transgression that brings his wrath upon the sinner. As far as the east is from the west, so so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Hallelujah. Amen for that. God, by his justification of the sinner, has taken away sins. Remember Micah 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. He'll cast our sins into the sea and into the depths. It's interesting. This, uh, the wording here uh, is beautiful in Micah. Uh, subdue our iniquities. Subdue. I think of subdue. I think like putting them down, rendering them powerless, right? No longer slaves to sin. And that is the amazing, mighty, powerful, incredible, phenomenal, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness, justified, whole, complete, reconciled before a holy God. And so the confessing, repentant, humble, penitent sinner has then been adopted into the family of God in this justification. And the tax collector, he went home justified. He went to the temple, he went home justified. 
But what did the Pharisee go home with? Nothing. Went home with nothing. He went home effectively worse than he came because he condemned himself. Condemned others, which was sinful. But then he can really condemn himself before a mighty God. Well, it is, this is a very encouraging parable to really give us a picture of what this is. And I want to draw out uh, some applications for us tonight. Uh, particularly, I actually want to draw applications from the Pharisee's prayer. Because I think it's important because we, we could always have these tendencies rise up within our heart, couldn't we? Of self-righteousness, of, 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 of works kind of based salvation. So we want to be on guard for this. And we want to go back to what Luke says here in the beginning. Are we trusting in ourselves or are we trusting in God? We need to examine our hearts in this way. We need to make our... Make, be diligent to make our call and election sure in this way. Now we know that there's many things in this life we can place our trust in, right? All of you are sitting down. You're putting some measure of trust in the seats and the chairs you're sitting in because you're hoping they don't collapse underneath you. So we're putting trust in all these little things in life. But we can put our trust in government, in money, in circumstances, in luck. We could just randomness. We could put our trust in ourselves, couldn't we? To save ourselves. It sounds somewhat preposterous to think we could somehow save ourselves eternally before a mighty God, but sometimes that's the spirit we have an inkling of when we are trusting in ourselves. It's really actually similar to what we've been studying in Psalm 37, right? You remember, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and he shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Because they trust in him. This is the salvation of the righteous from the Lord. So the righteous trust in God, not in themselves. Salvation from the Lord. So again, based on that, I just have three applications. Number one, number one, trusting in ourselves can result in hypocritical behaviors. Being hypocrites we trust in ourselves can often result in hypocritical behaviors. Our parable really shows the importance of the gospel today and how it's about the work of God and the gospel gospel truth itself penetrating our hearts rather than the gospel being some tool or leverage to get what we want, right? To get some, earn some kind of righteousness, right? And remember, Jesus really said this very directly to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Because we remember that was the interest of the group of, that peop, of people that Jesus was speaking to, the Pharisees, right? And he also said to them, you shall not be like the, prayer, the Pharisees when you pray, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. And so Jesus calls the behavior of this type hypocritical or, or hypocrites because they're performing an action outwardly for, for a certain purpose. They're not performing an action outwardly out of a quick quickening in their hearts, but it's to be seen and appear so by others. So it's not an inwardness of the heart. And we must be on guard for this sort of insincere behavior in our own heart. 
heart, right? The external look or picture is not what God is interested in, right? This is not what God has. It's, as Jesus told us, it's, it's out of the heart, and out of the heart come those blessings, that right behavior, that, that, that walking in truth. So the call is for us to be genuine, authentic, and transparent, to walk, to live with God according to the convictions he brings. We know that from Galatians 6, from Psalm 139, right? God cannot be mocked. You cannot hide from God. And remember that uh, we should strive to what is honorable in the Lord's sight. We're striving not to look good in front of men. And we must be consistently trusting in God and be faithful to him. So we just remember that trusting in ourselves can result in this hypocritical behavior, and so we need to be on guard and watchful for that. We need to trust in God. Number two, trusting in ourselves can cause us to think too highly of ourselves. can cause us to think too highly of ourselves and can cause us to overlook our sins and then condemn others. Of course, this is exactly what we saw in the uh, parable with the Pharisee. Uh, Because if we have a high view of ourselves then everyone else will be below us and we'll want to condemn them. But you might remember the words of Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem better than him, esteem others better than himself. So we are to, we are to esteem, esteem ourselves not better, but others better than us. And turn our attention to other people's sins. This is, this is, again, very destructive, as we said. as We're looking at other people, comparing their sins, considering what they're doing, instead of considering our sin before God. The Pharisee was self-righteously boastful about himself, and then he condemned others. So we do need to be on guard for this. We need to be on guard for this. Are we, are we focused on the sins of others? Are we thinking about the sins of others? This is really like a trap for us. It's a trap. It's to think about other people's sins, to dwell on them, to stir them around in our mind so they grow and exaggerate, and then maybe we whisper about other people's sins. It's just not, it's, it's not good. Perhaps we've all done it, but it's not. It's condemning. It's self-condemning, really. And we know that uh, perhaps publicly uh, for the sin, it's very dangerous if we've never talked to our brother and sister about it. We're we're supposed to do what? Restore one another with a spirit of gentleness, but taking heed lest we fall, right? Knowing that we are to be on guard because we're not sinless, we're not perfect. Kind of like the Pharisee thought he was as he said his prayer in this parable. So we must remember our sins. Make our calling and election sure, right? It doesn't say diligently strive to make others calling and election sure. No, that's between them and God. We are to remember the wisdom of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We must remember the call of Christ to humility by his example and his word. That God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So ultimately, if we love God, if we love God, if we are striving to glorify him, we'll be humbled by our own sins. We won't really have a lot of time or worry about other people's sins and trying to keep track of all that. No. We might be humbled also by our lack of personal holiness before a holy God. And in these things, the Holy Spirit will quicken us 
so that we don't esteem ourselves better than others, but we respond like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Thirdly, thirdly, trusting in ourselves destroys the joy of our salvation. It really does. If you trust in ourselves, it will destroy the joy of our salvation. And that joy, that incredible rejoicing that accompanies the angels in heaven when one sinner repents, it does not come by trusting in ourselves, does it? No. It comes by trusting and having faith and believing in God. And we see this in our parable. The tax collector is grieved over his sin. He has laid it all on the table for God. There's nothing he can do to earn his salvation. Nothing in his hands he brings, as we sang. Compared to that, the Pharisee, who is proclaiming his goodness. He actually believes some of these tithings and fastings will save him. But notice under that religion, under that mindset the Pharisee had, what a burden. I mean, he better keep tithing. He better keep fasting a lot. Because that's like, his, he's hoping his trust is all in that, is his works. Oh, what a burden compared to the joy of our salvation and the liberty we have in Christ. Nothing in our hand we bring and nothing we have to bring. Amen? <laughs> so the heart of the tax collector paints a powerful picture of the right set heart of the Christian, of humility, of meekness, of understanding who we are, who God is, and our true state. And it really renders us in humility uh, of not, not condemning others, not comparing to others, but rather by self, self-denial, by, by faith, seeing the salvation of God. And we see that again, Jesus' uh, important concluding statement, um, this man went down from his house justified. Man went down to his house justified. He's not trying to get justified by his own strengths or something he did because he realizes none of that's going to save him. Nothing he does. As we sang, all my tears forever flow. Eh, it's not going to atone. It's only by Christ alone. Rather, the justified one is broken and has poverty of spirit because he realizes He's not worthy of justification. I think that's a big thing. Are we even worthy of the, of, of, of the salvation of our God? Or are we un, an undeserving sinner? Right? Secondly, there's absolutely nothing he can do to try to get justified on his own works. He can't just work really hard. And so he's left to cry out to God for mercy because he knows God's the only one that can help him. So all of this creates in the tax collector humility. True humility, not a fake piety. It's true. And it will be exalted and lifted up by God. So may we not trust in ourselves and despise others, but may we be truthful with ourselves about our state. May we be real about our condition of unworthiness before a holy God and trust in him alone, knowing that that will be the joy of our salvation when we can sort of kind of cast, let go of the weights of trying to make it through to heaven on our own or by our own power. I want to just conclude today with some observations uh, from the Puritans. And uh, there's so much now available about the Puritans. I mean, there's really thick books. You could read all kinds of things about the Puritans. But um, they were uh, encouraged in the joy of the Lord. And and I think this is a good application as as we think about this. We think about the Pharisee who was, I mean, he he seems to be happy with his self-righteous works of righteousness, but he's burdened. 
But you can see the tax collector, tax collector comes and says, I have nothing to offer. I'm just a sinner and I need you, God. I, I need your mercy. And so there's like a freedom in that, isn't it? There's like a liberty in that. And that's, that, is a, that is a glimpse of the joy we have of the Lord, the joy of our salvation. The, the Puritans in this reading that I was, I was reading at a while ago talked about there's joy in everything in the Christian. It's not just, I mean, you can have joy in our salvation, hallelujah, amen. There's joy in all kinds of things that God gives us. And you might go to work or somewhere or to the store and people are excited because it's ski season now. I don't know. Or it's, they're excited because it's football season now. I don't know. But as Christians, we don't have to wait for a season. We are constantly joyful in Christ. We are constantly joyful in the amazing work of our God, and the joy of our salvation. So just listen to this. You remember Psalm 128, another one we could sing. Psalm 128, remember that one? Um, and actually, it's beautiful. Just to step through, if you just, just pick one psalm, Psalm 128, all the ways to be joyful, right? right? It, begins, it begins by saying, blessed is everyone that fears the Lord and walks in his ways. So we can have joy actually in the fear of the Lord. Have you ever thought of that? A joy in the fear of the Lord, right? To have a right understanding of who God is, right? To have a sense of his constant presence with us. To, to know uh, our awareness and obligation that we get to serve our God, that we get to worship God now. All done with a joy in the fear of the Lord. Uh, how about... How about a vocational joy? Can you have joy in your work? Absolutely. Psalm 128. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall dwell with you. Oh, yeah. Yes. God's given us this. Another way to glorify. Another way to have joy in him. Not just a job that provides the necessities of life, but as a calling from God. The same word as vocation. A calling, a vocation from God. Right? With a, with a God-glorifying purpose in view, right? That he has put us in a particular place to serve him, to build his kingdom, to be part of his work, knowing that we will enjoy God's gracious reward for e- eternity upon that work that we have given, that he's given us to us, this calling he's given us in life to put our hand to. How about, we'll just keep going. Psalm 128, verse 3. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house and the children like the olive plants around your table. How about joy in the family? How about joy in your, your, your family, what God's given you? Right? Wife, children, all of these things. Because blessings come there. God has given us. God has given us that. And we have that as well, of course, in the family of God. Right? We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have this abundant work that he's given us. And then also... Psalm 128, verses 4 and 5. Blessed are those who are blessed out of Zion, that you may see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. We have joy in the corporate worship of God, in the preaching of God, in the Sabbath day, in today. I mean, look at this. God's given us this day to rest, right? To fill the entire day, right? As we talked about in the public and private Worship of our God, right? What a blessing. These are the gifts God's given the church and the preached word he's given us, right? And all his beautiful means of grace. And then lastly, what about future joy? Do we have future joy? Do you have joy in the days to come? 
Joy in God's covenant faithfulness. What Psalm 128, back to verse 6, says, Yes, that you may see your children's children, for we are joyful in God's just faithfulness to all generations. His covenant of grace that he has extended over and over again. We can see it for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, but you might just see it in the next generation that rises up that's not even born yet, right? You may see, you know that you will see the gospel go forward until Christ comes again. And as we prayed before, we pray this building even right here, where we're standing right now, 100, 200 years from now, if Christ doesn't return, that the true and living God and the one mediator, Jesus Christ, will be preached right here for hundreds of years. And we know if that is as well, he will certainly be faithful to complete it. Well, amen. Those are the five five joys of the Christian life. And I encourage you to look through Scripture to, to remember that, to remember as we are, the humble sinner broken, saying, oh God, be merciful upon me, accompanied in that is the joy of our salvation and the joy of so many things he's given us in life. So may we, may we remember our God and may we remember just this, the fear of the Lord in the, in the face of Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit and that transforming work he does. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for this truth that you've given us. Thank you for showing us, oh God, we cannot trust in ourselves. What a dead end road to trust in ourselves, even in, even in a small way, even a small amount of time, even over a small circumstance, God. We, we cast it all upon you. We look to you, God, for hope, for our salvation, for faith. Oh God, we pray that you would quicken that and build us Build us up in that, God, and remind us of the joy of our salvation. Show us, open our eyes, give us ears to hear and eyes of faith to see all the joyous works that you do in our life where we can rejoice in our God. In Jesus' name, amen.